Throw that. a couple of expletives out there or you'll blank those out. <laughs> yeah. But um, anyway, what's your last name? Norris. Okay. Um, that was on the card, but I forgot. Um, hello and welcome to the Not a Victim podcast. Not a Victim is a show about learning to live a life without excuses. Today's guest is Grayson Norris. Did I say your f- name right? That is correct, Grayson Norris. I got like halfway through your first name and, and I was like, it's... I don't know. Something like that. That's uh, close enough. Anyway, um, yeah, so just tell me a little bit about your background and um, upbringing and just, uh, yeah, the scenario that you were born into. Well, I was uh, I was born to, to Miller and Sheila Norris. My parents, they stayed married my whole childhood. They got divorced after I got uh, grown. But the situation that I was born into, my, my mother, she had a... Now, as an adult, I look back on it and, and realize she had she struggled with a lot of things uh, mentally. I think depression and a lot of over uh, compulsiveness. Um, she went through uh, probably a, a period of twenty plus years. I mean, ha- you know, claiming to have multiple physical ailments. Uh, I think the majority, I think really it stems to uh, mental illnesses, but mm. she, uh, growing up, my mother was there in the, the physical aspect, but not emotionally or in any other way. Um, mm. she didn't do anything. She never, she didn't even leave the house. Uh, she was a compulsive hoarder that shopped and ordered things compulsively off tv mm. so our house was you know i mean every room was was hoarded with with stuff i mean you had if it was a bedroom you had one trail that led to the bed if it was the living room you have a trail that led to the to the uh chairs you know stuff like that i mean it, mm. it, it was in sh- such bad shape you know i've never had one friend over to my house growing up i mean we couldn't mm. um and my dad was so busy with work trying to pay all the bills and feed us and clothe us that you know uh our our yard was was grown up our house had paint peeling off of it i mean it, it literally looked like an abandoned uh piece of property the house that i that i grew up in and it, it was a major family secret to hide the situation that was mm. you know going on at home and like i said my, my dad had to do everything he had to take me to school pick me up from school um, I'd, on my summers, I spent down at his shop. My afternoons, I spent down at his shop. Um, we, my mom, like I said, didn't do anything. She didn't cook a meal. She didn't, you know. And looking back on it, I, I, I see where she struggled with a lot of mental mental illness, but also mm. um, the addiction to prescription medicines that the doctor was giving her, uh, prescription amphetamines, uh, painkillers, and I, you know, God knows what else was going on. But it really dismayed the the mental stuff even worse yeah what do you think kept your dad from addressing it or trying to or did that, he try that, to? that that was a that was another another issue I've, I've had to deal with as an adult because looking back on it you know i i thought to myself you know why 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 didn't my dad save me from me and my brother from that situation because it was so bad and toxic um but you know my dad he he believed that you know, my mom was physically ill and believed the things that she said. And hmm. my mom could be, you know, my mom could be very manipulative and uh, hmm. and just with the things that she was doing. And, and my dad believed her. And it was almost was a, my dad was angry about the situation. My dad wanted to change the situation, but he just kept his mouth shut and hmm. white-knuckled through it and just work, work, work. And uh, tried to do the best he can and left us in the situation. But I will say that as an adult, my dad has came to me and apologized to me for the thing, the way things were. And not only that, he has shown great penance to me in my adult life because he has been a wonderful father in my adult life. And he has mm. helped me in so many ways. And he's in recovery with me, you know. So he's yeah. he's involved with recovery with me, but the, but my mother, on the other hand, uh, she's almost sixty years old and she's in another. She's married again, but it's the same pattern of things going on. There's just no kids involved, and she still lives uh, 
in denial of the past and has never admitted the past and um you know that relationship hasn't been able to heal like it was with with me and my father but being uh being raised in that environment and hiding that secret and those things that were going on it created a lot of insecurities in me a lot of feelings of wanting to be loved mm. voids not being filled because i wasn't loved on like i was supposed to be and um you know it just it just was a bad situation i and i left that situation in my childhood being a very insecure person seeking out love and that would and that would wind up sending me down a lot of bad paths as an adult right um what was the image of your house from the outside you you know you were saying that obviously the the goal was to keep it all a secret how like yeah what did, what did other people think was going on oh it was I, you know it was the people that we even tried to hide it from our from our family members mm. uh and um everybody i mean I, I like i said it looked like an abandoned piece of property and pe- you know i don't i've never heard anybody say anything but they had to have thought a lot i mean i i, I remember one time in third grade we had to uh do a diagram of directions from our school to our home that was a a, a little project we had to do mm. and i remember i was so embarrassed and ashamed even at that age in third grade i remember i ended up making fake directions to my neighbor's house wow yeah i made fake directions to from school to my neighbor's house because i was so ashamed and fearful and worried so i went to a a, a private school that my grandmother was paying my me and my brother's tuition so you know the people that I was in school with, you know, they had the nice cars, the nice houses, the nice clothes, you know, all those kind of things because it was a, a upper white class private school and, you know, I wasn't in that category. So I desperately tried to hide the truth and I remember doing that in third grade. Make, I made made up fake directions <laughs> to, my, <laughs> to my neighbor's house. <laughs> when I was in ninth grade, I got involved with... Uh, Pro wrestling, not okay. like not like college style, but like pro wrestling. I got involved with that, um, and I was going to the gym, working out stuff like that. I had always been an overweight kid, but I had in my my probably around fifteen or so going to the gym. Some of that I lost my weight, got involved with wrestling, you know, stuff like that. That's one of the things that always kept me insecure too, was my weight as a kid. But mm. um, I lost weight, you know, got into wrestling, got into weightlifting and stuff like that. Um, dropped out of you know, high school at 17. <clears throat> and I had partied a couple of times when I was around 16 years old, you know, um, tried pot, tried alcohol a couple of times. Uh, for, second time I ever got drunk, I got so sick, I did not ever want to have no part of that again. I mean, I was throwing up all night long. It was terrible. <laughs> My body wasn't used to it. I said, I didn't say it really for me. But, um, through the gym and uh, a group of guys that was in the gym that I that I become uh, buddies with, they were big partiers. You know, that's what they did. They they went to the gym, they rode in nice cars, and they uh, they they got the girls. You know, they hung out at the bars. They were they were popular amongst the college crowd downtown in the bars. But they were they were older. You know, I was uh, I was in my late teens. They were, you know, in their you know, late twenties, early thirties, <clears throat> and I become friends with these guys, and I started going out down to uh, what well, it's not Capital City anymore, but a, a club downtown called Capital City. I started I started going out with these guys some when I was probably around nineteen years old or so, and I the first few times I went out I didn't even drink, you know, because um, I was trying to take care of my body, work out stuff like that, but. Uh, I started drinking some as I started going out and, you know, all those being accepted by these guys and these guys wanting to hang out with me and they're the quote unquote, you know, cool crowd, you know, for a very insecure person. I mean, that, that was, that felt great. Like, I mean, I finally felt a part of something, you know what I mean? Yeah. And putting the alcohol on top of it, man, I mean, it, that's all the confidence in the world. Right. And my my drink is you know it, it I probably drank and went out every other weekend is how it started around about nineteen or so. But uh, when I when I turned about twenty 
it started slowly picking up from every other week to every other uh, every weekend drinking and hanging out with my friends and going to the bars. And I mean, I'll tell you, I loved it. I I enjoyed the lifestyle. I enjoyed the alcohol. I liked the way it made me feel. Um, I mean, confident. You know, no anxiety, no no worries. I mean, just having a good time. You know, and feeling a part of something. And accepted, you know what I mean, and filling my voids with friends and alcohol and the club and all that stuff. But by the time I was, you know, 21, it had done turned into to binge drinking. Mm-hmm. You know, when I would go out with my friends, and that wasn't a daily thing. You know, we might go out Friday and Saturday night, but we we drank heavy all the way up to the following morning. Um, and it was it was during this uh, time frame, just being in the club, that I got introduced to cocaine for the first time. You know, I tried a bump in the bathroom with a friend of mine. He actually passed away about four years ago from a drug overdose. Mm-hmm. But um, I got introduced to uh, cocaine in, the, in this club scene. And it was just a one-time thing, but it would wind up turning into a major, major addiction for me in the near near future. Mm-hmm. What do you think the drugs, and, and you may have already kind of said this, but <clears throat> uh, what do you think the drugs were helping you get away from? Because... The only thing, I just never want people that hear this to go, oh, it's a guy saying like a drug story. No, 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 no. Don't, don't, like, I don't, um, you're not doing anything wrong. I'm not trying to roast you. I'm trying to roast them. Uh, I can't. No, no, I understand. Uh, okay, so what I'm saying is people go, oh, it's a guy that used to be on drugs. I know where this is going. And, okay, there are a few problems with that. One, absolutely every single person is different. And then, two, the beauty of, of this kind of story of someone who, um, dealt with a physical abuse of a physical thing is that you can see progress or regress in a way that if you struggle with some other kind of vice that is like internal, like fear or something, it's a little bit harder to quantify. So I actually like this kind of story because you can tell how you're doing very easily and there are all kind of other yeah. problems and all kind of other vices where it's just harder to tell uh, often um, where you are with it. But all that said... Everything has some underlying philosophy underneath it. Doing drugs, not doing drugs. Absolutely every decision has something, um, some driving reason behind it. And so, yeah, so that being said, like, what do you think were the the sort of core um, fears that were being addressed with the drugs or the alcohol or those, like, what were those needs? I'll be be honest with you, you know, and I, I didn't even come to realize these things until after I got into recovery because I thought that, I drank and did drugs because it felt good and it was fun. Yeah. But there's there's a lot more to it than that. Um, it it's hard to say. I, I I created a relationship with my addiction. Um, it filled my voids of of wanting to be loved. I know that sounds strange. But it did. I, I created a relationship with my drug addiction. It, that's 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 what I wanted. You know what I mean? I would rather have that over a girlfriend in a relationship. If I had my drugs and I had all that, I felt happy. I didn't feel voids. I didn't feel insecure. Mm. I didn't crave attention. I didn't crave love. Because mm. even a relationship would come with all <clears throat> kind of fear. Yeah, it would be. And, um, and in a strange way, without realizing it, alcohol, drugs... And negative relationships filled that, mm. those voids for me. Sober, I was still that same guy that was starved for love, starved for attention, and very insecure. Mm. When I was drinking and drugging, I didn't feel that way anymore. Mm. And it's not necessarily just the, the high, you know, or the, or the feeling of the alcohol that, that did that. It, I, I, I built some kind of love affair for those things because when I got sober, I grieved it. Right. I grieved it. Mm. And I'm not talking about grieving the high. I'm talking about grieving the dope itself, mm. grieving the alcohol, not having it. Almost like when you go through a breakup because I had built a relationship mm. with my substances mm. and I loved them. I mean, it, you Do know. Do you think I mean? it was like longing for this like idealistic version of you that you were when you were on those things. You know what I mean? That when you were high or when you were uh, drunk or whatever, that, that this like more confident, less worried, less paranoid version of you, um, that you have this like weird affection for that, um, that image of yourself. 
Yeah, I, yeah, because you know, I'll be honest with you. Uh, <laughs> on drugs and alcohol, I was very cocky, arrogant. Um, I mean, hold my head up high, feel like the man. Mental. Hmm. I mean, that's how it made me feel. And right. then off of it, I'm the polar opposite. Hmm. If I was high or drunk, I could, I could talk to any girl in the room. Hmm. Sober. I'm the, I'm awkward, don't know what to say, and fit, you know what I'm saying. Mm. So it did, it did, it created, it, it made me the person that I wish I could be mm. sober. Mm. Have you ever had a season of life that you thought you would never come out of? Just a cycle, a negative cycle, um, that you just felt like it was gonna just be that way forever. Is this before or after recovery? Uh, both. Both. <laughs> Yes. Okay, I'll do both. I'll do. Both. Actually, no. Okay, just do the first one because the we'll get to the other one later. Should do the one before. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I mean, I say I know this sounds very simple, but I the the season of life, the cycle of of addiction. I didn't think I was ever going to. get... I mean, I had re, I did finally reach a point to where I didn't think I was going to ever get out of it. But I also didn't want to get out of it. Hmm. Um, the thing about it is, is I, is I, like I said before, I mean, I, I fell in love with it, and I, and I enjoyed the lifestyle that came along with it. I, I enjoyed everything about it. Right, and I guess that would make the part of your brain that wanted you to stop. Uh, it would scare you because, uh, yeah, because you had such affection for it. It would kind of bring this fear that. I don't know that I could ever live any other kind of way uh, than with this feeling because yeah. you get like addicted to the feeling. Yeah, I didn't, you know, I didn't, I got to the point where I didn't know if I even knew any other way anymore. Mm. And, you know, in the beginning, the first few years, I mean, I didn't see a problem, feel a problem or think I had a problem. You know, it wasn't until later on when I began, you know, shooting up cocaine and doing uh, methamphetamine and all those kind of things that I started feeling the desperation hmm. to make a change and get sober. Did uh, the people in your life, did they know that you were doing all that? or? Yes, they did. You know, it, you know, when I was, when I was around 21, I got in my first serious relationship and a lot of that stuff slowed down. Um, I stopped going out as much with my friends and stuff like that, but with this girl that I got with, uh, I stopped drinking and going out as much, but she struggled with uh, opioid you know, addiction, and mm. she got me to using methadone and stuff like that, and this relationship was just mm. toxic and awful. And I would, I would sometimes sneak and do a little, you know, do cocaine behind her back or, you know, I could get away with it, you know, drink with friends and stuff like that. So mm. I hid that, you know, from her. But we, uh, I actually, she got pregnant probably a year or so into the relationship. Um, and we broke up and she lost the baby. So it was through mm. miscarriage. But I ended up finding out later on that she had an abortion. Mm. And we ended up getting back together, but we were you know, together on the grounds that she had a miscarriage. I didn't find out the abortion stuff until we broke up for the final time. Mm. But um, with that relationship, I tried to use that relationship to, to fill those voids and needs of love and all that stuff, but it was toxic. Mm. Was so what was that experience? I mean, what was the experience immediately following that? Like, obviously a breakup is very devastating because you it's, it's like a, it's like a rejection of everything that you are. It's yeah. like, a person saw everything that you are and just decided not good enough. So, um, you know, that's unbelievably uh, difficult normally. But um, with this, with the, the kid thing also happening at the same time, like, just what was that season like? Yeah. Uh, Immediately following that. You know, the breakup itself was... Um, bad maybe the first couple of weeks to a month. 
but the relationship had gotten so bad that mm-hmm. I kind of got over that part quickly. And I really, you know, once me and her broke up, I was I was drinking, partying, and doing cocaine more than I ever had done before. Mm-hmm. Um, but the part the the part that bothered me more than the breakup was the whole child thing, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and I would I would get drunk, get upset about it, stuff like that. Um, and today, I, I, I pardon me, blames myself for some of that because I felt like she wouldn't have, well, she made a choice to go do that, but I felt like she wouldn't have if, you know, we was broke up and she still was going to have the baby. We still, you know, we still was going to do that. But um, the way I treated her and how I acted and how nasty I was and how arrogant I was and the things that I said to her mm. pushed her to do what she did. So I feel almost equally as responsible. And I've had to accept that today. Mm. But then when it happened, you know, it did. Uh, the night I actually found out about it, I was at the bar, and I found out about it from her sister, and I ended up, I think I took some Xanax somebody gave me and drank myself into the oblivion and got into a physical altercation with somebody and uh, got arrested and went to jail <laughs> the night that I found out about it because I got so upset about it, you know. Mm. But... Mm. Um, so what are things that, I'm trying to figure out which comes next. Um, yeah, so how did you, like, when did it start turning around? Like, when did you start putting the, or changing the situation you had and why? Which situation as far as? As far as, like, when you, coming out of addiction, at least the first time or whatever, um, I mean, I guess maybe you did it just because of how bad things were getting. You just know we just can't keep going down whatever way this is. But, um, yeah, so two things. So just, like, about – tell me about, like, that season. Like, what changed – what things changed internally that caused you to to, um, leave the addiction you had? And then, um, yeah, just that. And then we'll get into the other stuff after that. Probably um, I was around – 26 years old or something like that um and i had been at a friend of mine's wedding that saturday afternoon and i had been doing cocaine and drinking and all that stuff and i went out that night and partied and ran into uh an old buddy of mine and went back to his house and it was a early sunday morning and he uh introduced me to the shooting up uh cocaine Mm. and that's when things really got out of hand and out of control for me um and i seriously knew i had a problem uh you know when i got on the needle that's when i began to really steal lie cheat do whatever i could to get high um there were times that I would run out of drugs and money and I would be so high out of my mind that I would shoot up anything that I could find in the house that I thought would give me a high. I even shot up rubbing alcohol one time, mm. multiple times in a night, and it made me urinate blood for hours. Mm. Like, I mean, I would literally, I would put anything into my bloodstream with a needle that I thought would get me high. And this ended up leading me to getting a staph infection in both my arms Mm. from shooting and missing oxycodones. Mm. And I laid in bed for about five days before I finally went to the uh, emergency room. And they ended up doing emergency surgery. And Mm. um, I had a total of three pretty big incisions on my arms that I had, you know, to drain all the infection and stuff like that out. And I got out of the hospital and continued to do the things that I was doing, but um, I was getting, I I knew I needed some help and I knew I needed some change. And I had went on, I stayed up about a week on some uh, meth and coke and coming down off that week and, you know, having that surgery the few weeks before, like, I mean, I I hit a bottom Mm. and I knew I needed something. I just didn't know what. And I was like, I got to get back. I got to start back working. I'm going to start back going to the gym and working back out, try to get, you know, back Mm -hmm. to doing the things that I was doing before. And when I went to the gym, 
uh, ran into an old drug buddy of mine. Hadn't seen him in a while. And I was telling him everything that was going on in my life. Uh, about my surgery, about this, the meth use, all the crazy stuff going on. And he looked at me and told me I needed Jesus. That's what he told me. And I'm looking at this guy, you know, covered in tattoos that have been to prison. We used to do drugs together, sell drugs together. And uh, he said, I needed, Jesus. I needed Jesus. And I said, and he said he was going to church. And I said, where at? And he said, Freedom Church. And I remember Freedom Church from my childhood because we went briefly when I was small and the church first started. But because of my mom and that situation, uh, she no longer wanted us to go to church if she couldn't go, so we stopped. But I, knew, I remember it as from a small child, just that you know, very brief time that I was involved in church because I didn't grow up in church. Mm. And uh, what do you think about? So, I believe that hedonism, the idea that if it feels good, do it. Um, that the other side of that is nihilism, is that everything is meaningless, that life is meaningless, and it's this sort of eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you may die or whatever uh, mentality, which permeates like our entire society every song is about it every show is about it sleep with whoever do whatever right now because nothing means anything and it's a it's a result of our um, society becoming very secular and and an inevitable result of that um the problem with that is if you (laughs) if you do eat and drink and do all that stuff but you don't die tomorrow and in fact you live 50 more years they're gonna suck (laughs) (laughs) Um, but just what was the sort of change of philosophy that you had and and obviously when you're when it's happening you don't that's not what you would call it you just know it's changing you don't know what what it is or why you just know okay this is different but what are the things um i guess i'm coming down to what are the sort of daily things big or small um that you put into place like are there i'm sure as a healthy person now there are like patterns that you forced yourself to create in a way that um, beforehand everything was chaos, so everything was short-term thinking, um, and there were no yes. real like patterns. And so, what are things, and how did you like put things into place to um, sort of give your life more peace? Is that speaking about today or when I first? Uh, just like when they, when you were rounding that corner. What, when what I was when I was when I was in the process of trying to actually get clean for the first time, the things that I yeah. was trying to put in place. I mean, you said, you said like, going back to work, right? So that would, yes. that would make you super accountable again. Yeah, that, that was... Um, I, I was working at Tri- Triumph Aerostructures at the time, and I got back in, into work because I was out on temporary disability. I lied about why my arms were like they were, but I started going back to work. My friend invited me to church. I started coming every Sunday. Um... And I got baptized, and, you know, I was trying to, quote-unquote, live the Christian life that is the best that I possibly could, which at that time it was just come on Sunday mornings, you know, don't miss work, you know, don't use. But sadly that lasted like five, maybe six months at the longest before I would end up Mm. relapsing again. Okay, tell me about that. Well, I um, got sober, and like I said earlier, when I was on drugs and alcohol, I did not crave relationships uh, like a personal uh, relationship, like a girlfriend. Mm-hmm. I liked my drugs and alcohol, my friends, mm-hmm. but as soon as I would get sober, I would get obsessed feeling like I had to be in a relationship. You mm-hmm. know, I can't be single. Like I, and I got involved with somebody um, and things, it was very brief, um, and things did not work out. She lied to me about some stuff, and I found out one day when I was on my way to work. Some of the what things, did she lie to you about? And you don't have to tell me if you don't want to tell me? I just have to ask. Oh, I'll, I'll tell you. I, I don't mind because we're not saying anybody's name. Here. Yeah, yeah. Um, her father was a pastor in a church. Um, her parents and her grandparents were like, very strict on her as far as hanging out with me and the reason supposedly why was because she had had sex with the youth pastor that was at her father's church and she told me that that was not true 
Um, but something kept nagging at me, and one day she finally admitted that it was true, that she did have sex with the youth pastor at her father's church. Mm. And that's why her parents were keeping such a... Because like I said, she was... I was 27. I think she was 18. Mm. Um, and when I found that out on my way to work, like, it's it being a tailspin, like, mm. I felt very betrayed. So... <laughs> You know, after five or six months, but I had not done any type of recovery. I was just sober. You know, yeah. I, I, I pulled over on the side of the road, and I texted my supervisor and said, I'm not coming in. And I left, and I ended up going to my brother's work. He had a little party after work. I ended up drinking. I ended up leaving there. I ended up going downtown, and I ended up running into the old drug buddy, and I got on some cocaine, and um, I was back off to the races again mm. because of that. One lie that got told. Uh, I broke very easily, but looking back on it, it's because, yeah, I was coming to church on Sunday mornings, but I wasn't involved in any type of recovery. I wasn't really putting a strong effort into living for Jesus because I wasn't having no kind of accountability team. I wasn't getting close to people. I just was coming on Sunday morning. It made me feel good, and then right. I didn't do nothing the rest of the week. Yeah, there wasn't like a, a sort of ideological structure yes, so I for bro- why I and broke- why not. I broke very easily. So, okay, so I'm trying to understand the thing with her. So she had slept with the youth pastor guy. Yeah. And so her parents knew that, and so they were very, like, had a very, like, tight rein on her uh, because of that. Yes. What did she tell you? Like, what was the version that she told you as to why they were being that way? She said that it was uh, because of that, but that it was a lie. You know, pretty much that she didn't do that, that it was made up, that it wasn't true. That they were just trying but they, to but they, but they, But they were controlling her based on a lie, hmm. pretty much. And I believed it hook, line, and sinker at the time, you know. Hmm. So Yeah, almost almost nothing hits deeper than that kind of uh, betrayal, I guess. Um Yes. Yeah, so tell me about the just what happened after that. Whatever, whatever comes after the. the well, it, it 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 got it got wild. I mean, I started skipping work again. Mm. I started uh, drinking. I started back uh, shooting up. I was doing coke. I was doing uh, methamphetamine. Um, I mean, it got it got wild for probably. Let me think. Probably around three or four months, I it got pretty wild. I were, and I remember um, I started kind of hitting that bottom again because I was missing so much work and I was doing all the crazy stuff I was doing. And I remember Thanksgiving that year, uh, I was high on meth, and me, my dad, and my brother went out to eat. <laughs> I couldn't, I couldn't hardly eat. I was paranoid. I was, I mean, it, it was awful. It was a terrible Thanksgiving, and. I had that feeling again. Okay, I got, I got, I got to stop this again. Mm. I got to stop. I got, I got to stop this. You know, I don't like this. I don't, you know, like staying up for days on end. I, I got to, I got to stop this. And um, and I did. And I stayed sober probably two or three weeks. And I ended up meeting another female that I work with. And uh, we started dating and talking some. And like I said, I was sober two or three weeks. And two or three weeks in, um, I found out something about her, and I allowed that to cause me to relapse. But the thing about it is, we didn't break up. We actually ended up. You know, up... I have to ask you what that was. <laughs> <laughs> you can say that all you want. You know where this is going. Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. So, uh, again, you don't have to tell me. I just have to ask. <laughs> Uh, well, if we won't you, be wrong, we'd be wrong and honest. We'd be wrong and honest. Okay. Um, I'll, <laughs> I'll just kick myself if I don't ask. No, it's no, it's okay. <laughs> I can be. We can be wrong and honest. Um, and I can edit if you want. If you decide it. No, I, I'll be. Mm-hmm. I, I'll be wrong and honest. Now, I, I will put it to you like this. I found out that she had an STD. It was an uncurable STD. Mm. She took medication for it, you know, and it had, she's had, had it for years. Um, it's nothing that I ever caught or anything like that, thank God. 
Mm-hmm. Um, even tried to have have kids in our relationship. Um, but thank God, praise God, I never nothing that I ever caught. But when I when she told me about it, I, I used it as an excuse to start back using. But and she knew that I used that one time, but stayed in a relationship with me anyway. And within a month or two, she moved in with me, and we lived together for the next probably year and over a year. Mm. And I'll be honest with you, it was hell on earth mm. because she was sober, I wasn't. And that year or so that we lived together, my methamphetamine use got to an all-time high. Um, I was still abusing cocaine. I began to abuse uh, Roxy's. I made drug connections at my job. I was buying pills, buying coke. I was doing a lot of meth. Uh, I worked second shift. I was doing drugs at work. And she used to be an addict, but she's no longer, was at the time no longer an addict. So if you could imagine, I'm tweaked out and geeked up on meth and coke. Mm. I'm paranoid out of my mind. I was that meth user that, I was that meth user that heard voices, saw things that wasn't there, was paranoid, was uh, very uh, delusional and stuff like that. And then you got a sober person here that I'm hiding it from. You know, I'm staying up all night long, laying in the bed, staring at the ceiling, staying up for days at a time, acting like I'm not using drugs mm. <laughs> in front of a sober person. So mm. it, it was that year or so was it was it was horrible. Not only was the the meth use and drug use terrible, but the hiding it in the lies and the manipulation and the sneaking around right there under the same roof in a small three bedroom house. It was mm. it was bad. It what was, was bad. life like with her when you were sober? During you know what I mean? You want me to tell them to hold it down? Or? Sure. <laughs> Go away. <laughs> A lot of random noise. Did you edit that out, right? <laughs> a lot of it I cannot edit out because so, it's too close to like talking, so it's just gonna be there. But I will just at some point I'll just acknowledge it, which I guess will be right now. <laughs> but we're just recording in a church, and there's just people everywhere. But uh, so that's why there's a bunch of random noise. Um, anyway, the relation the relationship when I was sober, yeah, brief little times. It was it it uh it wasn't. It wasn't bad, mm. you know. Um, we actually got engaged, even with all the chaos going on. Mm. Um, you know, it wasn't it wasn't bad. We got we got along fine when I was sober, mm. and I, you know, looking back on it, I really don't know if it was her self-esteem issues or what it was because I, I looking back from a sober state of mind I don't see why she stuck around like she did some people say it was because she loved me I don't know I don't know what it was but because mm-hmm. she stuck I mean I put her I put her through it I mean it, you know I have apologized for that since then but I did I I really why do you I, think you if you didn't I mean this might be the most obvious question ever but if you did enjoy um you know, life with her when you were sober, what do you think was keeping you from just doing that, just being sober and enjoying, you know, what that was? Well, you know, I think it was a, a combination of things. Um, I hadn't I hadn't gotten into... Uh... <laughs> it's just Heidi, I can tell. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Um, where were we at? What question was it? Uh, yeah, no, I was saying like, you know, if, if things were, were okay when you were sober, um, why didn't I just, why didn't I just, yeah, I mean, I guess you were, you were too far in at that point, but I I was too far in. I I was, I was heavily addicted. I, I couldn't, I couldn't shake the, uh, the addiction. And the thing about it is too, you know, I, I believe that 
the more godly of a lifestyle you live and the closer you draw yourself to God, that, you know, he, he'll draw close to you. You know, you have to seek him out. And, you know, we was living together. We were not married. You know what I'm saying? That yeah, there's what, just no... We, yeah, there, what we wasn't There's no living. boundaries, really. Yeah. So it can't be this, like, super healthy thing. Yes, it wasn't. It, 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 was, it, was, it was not... It was not healthy, even with, you know, you remove the drugs and alcohol, we're living together, we're having sex outside of marriage, we're not, you know, I'm not living the Christian life, so of course I'm still going to, I couldn't, I didn't remove all those sinful things out of my life, right? Still, so I could draw closer to God. Right, it was just, everything was still impulse. Yes, everything, yes, everything was, and you know... I had to really clean out my closet, and there was a lot more than drugs going on. That mm-hmm. was that was just one thing. But that you know relationship was it just wasn't healthy. It wasn't godly, you know, and it was just that that year and three months was just it was it was rough. Mm. It was rough. I think it's um, just the older I get, the more I kind of feel like that freedom comes from living by set like principles you know that um like for example i'm debt free and i never spend money i don't have and because of that um i have all kind of freedom after that but i had to front load the effort to get to that point and then everything after that is really nice where it's very natural and common to live like moment to moment and not ever delay gratification um but that brings all kind of hell with it that when you you know when you do live for the moment um the not only is it sort of uh nihilistic and sad because it become it comes with a belief that tomorrow either won't exist or won't be good yeah. and so it needs to be ran from um so there's that there's this like underlying dread about it but also there's just really no um there's no planning for it because Again, it's a thing to be avoided. And uh, I believe you're either going to be someone whose long-term uh, inconveniences your short-term, or you'll be someone whose short-term ruins your long-term. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so uh, so just bring me up to what happened after that and, and uh, everything from after that to, to, I guess, where you are now. Well, it um, that relationship ended uh with her moving out what what led to it was i i'd been up on meth a couple of days um we got into an argument um i have never in my life been uh physically abusive towards a female but being up for so many days and coming down off the drug and getting into that argument um i ended up slapping her in the face mm. and that led to her uh moving out we didn't break up at first. Um, we still was in the relationship, but she did move out. But um, we finally did cut ties for a brief period of time. And when we did, it kind of all happened at one time. We we split up. Um, I was actually supposed to be the mascot at Vacation Bible School that June, and I got how methamphetamine has stayed up for three days and I couldn't I couldn't be there for that of course uh, with a bunch of kids high like that but I missed vacation Bible school and I, I hit that bottom again and we broke up and I got sober again all at one time but this time was the first time that I really ever got serious about recovery I went to two meetings probably 10 Years ago, never took it serious. I think I went a couple of times, never took it serious. I never had any real recovery. But this time, I knew I needed to get some help. I went... Uh, what do you think kept you from believe, like really participating the first few times? Did you just come and feel like... Uh, I'm ten not, years I'm ago? Like ten people, years ago? Man. Well, you know, I, I'll be honest with you. Like, I thought... It, 
I was very blind to what was really going on. Like I thought that I just had a problem with with cocaine. That's that's what I thought my problem was. I did not see a problem with drinking. I didn't think that was my problem. So like the couple of weeks that I was quote unquote in recovery, I still was drinking alcohol, but I wasn't doing coke. And I would even tell my my buddies. I even told my drug dealer that man, you know, I'm just. I'm I'm down. I just I'm gonna leave the coke alone. I gotta go to get go to some recovery meetings. Get off this coke. And I'm I'm saying that while I'm you know drinking a vodka and Red Bull. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, yeah, I ask that because um, it's very normal for normal people to look down on uh, recovery people, or like that's why it generally has some kind of stigma around it. Meanwhile, post recovery people are so much more healthy than normal people, and uh, so if if like looking down your nose is going to go one way, it should go the other way. Yeah. But it's very normal to be very unhealthy. It's very unhealthy, uh, normal to lie uh, and to feel alone in your own home, to be in debt. There's so many horrible things that are very normal. And so normal is not the thing uh, to be strived for. It is by definition uh, neither the best nor the worst. Um, but yeah, so I think it's very common, even for the people that will hear this, to just go, Oh, well, thank God I never did no drugs. Like, you're missing the point. <laughs> the drugs are a symptom of something. Yes. And the things they are a symptom of, you do have. And if you don't think you have them, you really have them. And if you do think you have them, you have them. Everyone struggles with the same things. The core needs at the heart of every human are the same for every single person. That is true. Whether you uh, have walked straight and narrow or not. And if you have, good on you. And But even someone who is lives an unbelievably non-dramatic life uh, and and is doing very well and is very healthy. They are that way because they do face the fears, those same fears, head on and maybe make a different choice when facing it, but no one is exempt. Um, yeah, so, uh, so you got in recovery, but this time you were either, for whatever reason, I guess maybe you were more down and more out, um, that you uh, it was different this time and you, and you were way more serious about it. Yeah, I originally went to the Oconee Center, which is a government-funded thing, you know, classes and stuff. First thing they wanted to do was put me on a, a bunch of mental health medication, mm. which I did not need. I, I don't I don't believe that you get off yeah. of drugs to get on prescription drugs. All right. I, some people do need medication, and I think that they're there for certain reasons, but I think they're over-prescribed, and I yeah. think they're overused. And um, Yeah, I, I heard something the other day that, um, there are a lot of antidepressants where um, they will be prescribed to someone, and then the person will come back and say, "Hey, it's it's not working that good." And then so the doctor, in many cases, will give them a antipsychotic to take with the antidepressant to make the antidepressant work better. Uh, meanwhile, the second drug is for a totally separate thing that they don't even have. Exactly. But there's so much of that uh, going on. Yeah, they're, they're, I believe that there's people that need them. I know that, and I believe that they can be used and help people. But I yeah. think that they're over prescribed, and you know, being in recovery so many years now, I see it all the time. It's like uh, government-funded rehabs or whatever. It's like the first thing they want to do is put somebody on a bunch of pills. Yeah. It's just and, easier. I, I guess. mean, you know, and and um, and that's what they try to do with me, and. I wouldn't have no part of it, so I got online, and that's when I and I was trying to find a meeting somewhere, you know, and that's when I seen that Northside Baptist had a Celebrate Recovery meeting um, on Thursday nights, and I had heard of that before because I actually, uh, 10 years ago, I was, for about three years, I worked at Baldwin State Prison as a correctional officer, and I remember inmates going to this thing called Celebrate Recovery. I never knew what it was. I knew it was something to do with drugs and alcohol. So, I mean, he rung a bell, and I, was, I heard, heard of it before. And um, I, said, I, I said, well, I'll give it a shot. And that's when I really got in recovery and started taking it serious. I went every single Thursday at Northside to Celebrate Recovery, you know, at 6.30, and I was at Wednesday night small groups at church. I was at Sunday school. I was there Sunday mornings. I was helping with the youth. Anything and everything that I could possibly do, I did. And I gave my testimony at church, and I was in it hard, and it lasted 90 days. Mm. It lasted 90 days. What happened then? Well, um, I had been sober. Just got my 90-day chip. Um and I had actually a guy 
that was struggling with addiction. And um, my, my, uh, somebody had called me. Um, my pastor had called me and said, you know, this guy's having problems with addiction, you know. Um, can I help him? And I said, yeah, sure, you know. But I was only three months in. I'm still a baby, you know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he had had neck surgery. And he had a prescription for Roxy's. And we spent time together, and you put two and two together. And mm. next thing I know, I was, he was giving me Roxy's for free. Mm. But, you know, and it started, it started there, and I hit it. Um, and also, you know, at the time, I was, I was struggling with a, with a lot of uh, anxiety. Mm. Um, and I was prescribed, you know, anti-anxiety medication. Um, and it made me tired. Mm. And one Friday, I got my paycheck, and you know I'd already done slipped up and did the Roxy's. Nobody knew about that. But I sat there and told myself, I said, "Hmm, sure would be nice to have a little bit of mm. coke to pick me up." And mm. I call, I, I called my old drug dealer, and of course he answered the phone, and I got that first bag, and it, it. It spun out of control again. This time it lasted about six weeks, and I got I got stopped because I ended up getting locked up. Hmm. So now you sort of facilitate um, celebrate recovery here at yeah at Freedom Church. Tell me just uh, and not using any names, but just some ways that you've seen like stories of people that um, God has used your life to help someone else. Just you know what I'm saying. Just like if you have anything that comes to mind of people that. Uh, stories that you know of other people that have um, been helped because of Man, your, this, your presence, you know. I could talk for hours about that. It's, yeah. it's, I mean, it, there's it's, nothing more. There's just nothing more meaningful in all of life than that. That's why I'm I, I, I know. This and, that, podcast. And, and that's and that's and that's the reason. That's the reason why I do this is to see people's lives changed, and. Over the past, you know, three years that we've been doing Celebrate Recovery here, I mean, it's been, I mean, we have, I have people here, you know, the the guy that introduced me to the needle, he's here every Tuesday night, been sober for hmm. three years. Another buddy of mine that I used to run the street with, he's ever, he's here every Tuesday night. He's been sober five years. He's actually my sponsor. I mean, like I, hmm. you know, there's so many people from the past that. Are here we're doing this thing together you know right and then not only are they not doing whatever that thing they they were doing yeah. but they're like really personally healthy like every day is better every yes. day is filled with so much more peace and enjoyment of day-to-day life and um yeah there's so much it goes so much deeper than just not doing a thing that you used to do, you know, like the the entire world views it it, it. it it does. The thing about it is, it goes so much deeper than just getting sober. I mean, you get sober, you work your steps, you get a sponsor, and once you, then you reach this point where it's time to give back what God has given to you. And I mean, that's you know what I love about this ministry is I've seen people, I know where they come from, and they're not just sober but they are completely changed from the inside out i mean they talk different they yeah. look different they act different. their lifestyles is totally different i mean they're the complete polar opposite of what they used to be yeah and i would say to someone who is maybe listening to this that is that is not a believer that is from the outside looking in on faith in general you know if you want to think about it this way scripture is a mixture of morality, spirituality, history, and psychology, really. On my worst day, I still see, I can still see it that way and understand, like, the value of the morality of the Bible, the value, uh, and the wisdom of the psychology of the Bible, and, like, all each of those things, that those things don't really take very much faith to understand how there's so much meaning there. And then um, the God aspect is the why, and this is the thing that the secular world has no answer for and completely does not understand, and that is it does not understand meaning, it doesn't understand anything that outlives your life, and as a result, it just has no real answer to uh, meaninglessness in a way that only within the framework of God does that exist because it connects you to the people that came before you, 
people that are alive now and the people that will come after you. It's an overarching thing that lives on whether you live or die. And so it's not a coincidence to me that there's not a massive atheist recovery group that is, you know, even AA, which is not um, really explicitly like Christian or something, it, it definitely alludes to God um, from my understanding of it, that it, it has a lot of, it still has a lot to say in that regard. Whoever wrote those books, the AA books, that they understood that there has to be a why, and there can't be a why without something bigger than you. Um, the last question is, what are the biggest fears you face right now? Well, when I, when I first got sober, I got consumed with, with fear. But a lot of my fear stems from my, you know, I, I like, like uh, my mother, I struggle with obsessive compulsive disorder. And that's what it is, is, is fear of things. Now, I'm in the best place that I could possibly have been at uh, with that. Um, but I went through a lot of struggles, fear and, I mean, everything. The majority of my fears were were made up in my mind. It wasn't really reality. And working through steps and stuff like that, I've tried to separate, you know, the insanity of choosing to believe lies mm. and the sanity of choosing to believe truth and walk in truth. Um, Do you think the fear of small, irrational things that would be considered OCD, yes. that they, um, that it's really just one underlying fear under all of those? I I think a lot of what I probably fear, if it's an underlying thing, is failure. Um, I seek out things to be perfect. Um, I don't want to fail at anything, especially if I'm put over it or appointed over it. I mean, I, I, I guess the fear of not me- measuring up or the fear of failing or the fear of falling short, hmm. or or the it, fear of, of of what you're doing not meaning anything. Yeah, or, or the or the fear of not satisfying somebody completely, or hmm. even me, or the fear of me not being satisfied completely. That you know, the fear that uh, you know things won't be a hundred percent the way I want them. You know what I mean. What are things that you do to openly address and disobey those fears that might be in the back of your head? Well, first off, I, I realize that they're lies. <laughs> That's the thing about it. I mean, the fears are they're lies. Um, and I try to force myself not to choose the same path of believing fears and lies and make myself walk in truth and tell myself that it's... Uh, not the truth and I will and if I have fear of doing or saying something I will make myself do it to conquer that fear and every time it's like after it's over with like what was I afraid of you know what I mean yeah Um, I'll be honest with you working steps and having a sponsor has helped me separate that because my mind got so polluted with so much fear and over compulsive thoughts that I begin to wake up and think the same things day in and day out and believe the same things day in and day out. And that's insanity because the things that I was believing and how I was living was not truth and reality. It was over-compulsive, fearful, repetitive thoughts or just obsessive thoughts of things that I have no power or control over. And thinking about them changes nothing. So a lot of times I try to do a lot less thinking and more living is yeah. what I try to do, if that makes sense. I yeah. try not to live in my head and think my way through life, yeah. but live in truth and just live my way through life. Right. You know. And I think you do that practically by signing yourself up for things. So, like you said, never missing certain things, uh, work, this, these meetings or whatever, church stuff, family stuff. You, there's peace that comes with like patterns, and there's just so much... Um, there's so many good things that come from responsibility and that come from um, signing yourself up for something that's meaningful, even if 
there are all kind of short-term yeah. moments where you feel like it's you don't want to do it. Um, I mean, maybe the CR thing itself is like that sometimes where you'll have like a momentary like, I don't know that I could do this thing or whatever, or just any kind of fear associated with it. But you've already like written the check proverbially, and so you now, like you've signed yourself up for it. And now you do continually kind of rise to the occasion because um, because you have to. You, you've put that in place that this is a thing that you do. And I, I bring that up because something I read on uh, a while ago that just has stuck with me is you don't find yourself you create yourself. And um, another thing um, I heard recently was that you, you shouldn't avoid responsibility if you want meaning. That he, And the guy that was explaining it used it kind of in the um, analogy of going to the gym, that if you go to the gym but you put no weight on, you just don't get anywhere, you're just spinning your wheels. And so if you go through life and you avoid all responsibility, yeah, it'll be easy, but it will be completely meaningless. And then if you go way too far the other way, you can only do it for a short period of time. But that when you go to the gym, you want to find kind of what is the edge of what you can handle continually. And that as you do that, you physically see gains. You physically see uh, strength growing and you physically grow. Um, and that life being that same way that there's a lot of meaning and responsibility, especially if the things you're responsible for are associated with meaning like uh, with family, with kids, or wife, or uh, or th- something like this, where it, it always those things always come with fear, but they that if you avoid all responsibility, you won't be left with with any meaning really. Tell me about your relationship stuff now. Like, are you married now? Are you not married now? Yes, I. I'm... And and what was different this time versus the other times and that kind of thing. Well, I've been married. Um, February will be two years. Um, I met my wife in church, and she has a very similar background that I do. I do. She's been in recovery. I've been sober four years. She's been sober five years, and we share the same recovery month, but she's got a year on me. <laughs> but uh, the difference in this relationship is we put Jesus Christ first. Mm. And I'm not going to say that we haven't had problems because we have. Our first year and a half was tough. It was very tough, and a lot of the stuff that we had to deal with and overcome were things, you know, uh, from her past, things from my past. Like structural problems. I mean, just and past relationships with people of the opposite sex, stuff. I mean, just yeah. a lot. There's a lot of, of stuff that was brought to the table that had to be dealt with, um, and we got married very quickly. You know, after we met, I think we were together maybe six months and we got married. So a lot of the stuff that got aired out and worked on was after we got married. So you can see where that, mm. and, it, and it got tough for a while. You know, uh, she can't have any more kids. I don't have any children. Mm. That became a problem. But at the same time, we, we got custody of her 12-year-old daughter. And she asked me a couple months ago to adopt her. So I'm in the process of mm. adopting my stepdaughter. Um, and, you know, we got over that hump. But it was hard. I mean, it was tough, man, the first year and a half. But the difference is, is that we put Christ first in our relationship. If it wasn't for Him, there's no way we would have made it. Yeah. So and, you per, you basically raised the standard for yourself. Yes. <laughs> and and the thing is, is we uh, make our recovery a priority. We make our relationship with Christ and the church a priority, and all those things combined is why our marriage works and why it will continue to work. Mm. If I was still choosing the same toxic things from the past that I chose or, or what she was doing the same toxic things, we wouldn't make it. The difference maker is a relationship with Christ, yeah. positive relationships, positive people, and sticking with recovery and we just and working on things one day at a time. Okay, so you meet her, everything's great. You really like her, she really likes you, everything's great. So now there's definitely this like fear. You feel like you're walking on tightrope again because you know the obsessive all or nothing like part of your. You know that that's a possibility. You know what I mean. So like, what are and they might be really small things, but what are just like ways that you say like, okay, we're not doing that again. Well, the thing is funny about it is we did do that in the beginning. That's why I got married so fast. Okay. Because I, you know, I I I, I met her and I was like, let's do this, let's do this, let's do this. 
You know, I was even you know, like, take some, take your time, take your time. No, I don't want to take my time. This is what I want. I want it now. You know, and that's one thing that led us to some problems because if we would have dated a little bit longer, we could have worked through things a little bit differently. So it was like that. That's why we got married so fast. But the dust is kind of settled now, and you know that um, euphoric just meeting somebody, you know, cloud nine kind of relationship, which is really can be unrealistic. Right. Um, we're 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 out of that, and we're now in a more realistic, yeah, healthy uh, relationship. Yeah, and and, now, and because you're both in recovery, you're even if you weren't, you are now the you're both the like let's talk about everything type people. Yes, that's the thing about <laughs> it. We are we, we 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 do, and that's the thing about it. I mean, whether it, you know, uh, we both voice our opinions very well, you know, and. We can have a disagreement about things, but at the end of the day, we still love each other and we work through it. And um, I mean, it's she's my best friend. I mean, mm. I you know, and I'm her best friend. Mm. And I and I really, honestly, I, I I can't imagine, nor do I want to imagine, my life without her or Emily. You know, our daughter. Mm. I, I don't. I mean, it's just um, I've really been blessed with that. I can't imagine my life without either one of them mm. now. You know. Well, that's amazing. Thank you so much for your time. Is there anything else you want to uh, say or plug or anything like that as we uh, wrap this up? I think I, I think I said it all, but yeah. what I, what I want to encourage people to do that maybe listen to this and are struggling, you know, I've been to the very bottom um, several times. And the thing is, is to never give up. I've had multiple relapses, but I kept getting up. So every time you get knocked down, keep getting up. And the thing is, is you have got to put your faith in Christ and you got to trust him and get involved with the recovery group work at 12 steps get a sponsor and I'm, I'm, I know that there's no way I would be where I am without Jesus Christ that, that's the number one thing that I try to tell people and get involved with a church um, and just build your life around him I mean it's an exciting fun life I mean I, I thought what I did in the past was fun but I, today I'm like well what's going to happen next man this is awesome yeah. what's what's fitting to happen next right it's the difference between fun and goodness you know yeah. some things are fun but not good some things are good and not fun but the feeling of good lasts the feeling of fun doesn't well thank you so much for your time and uh, I think that is it we'll see y'all later <laughs> appreciate it <laughs> yeah <laughs>